Uh, if you have a Bible there in front of you, if you want to keep that open, I think you might, you might find that um, helpful. Continuing a theme of trying to encourage you that every now and again I, I do do something other than watch Netflix and sort of get a bit of culture. A few lines here from the poem by John Donne. You'll perhaps recognize it. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. We're not isolated individuals. We are connected. Our lives are organized and they're organized first and foremost by relationships. Paul has given us in the last uh, passage we were looking at last week, all of these great behaviors that come when the gospel starts to take root in us, all these things that, that start to happen in us, and uh, as we start to express the love and the reality of the gospel that we've received in Jesus towards others, and, and he's summarized it by saying there's these things that you put on, there's these new attributes, these new clothes that you put on, and these old ways that you take off, and there are all things that preserve relationships, that was one of the things we noticed about them. That actually, all of those things that if you could do those and then not do those other things, how much better would our relationships be? And our relationships that are strained and struggled and the relationships around us of others that are strained and struggled. How many times is it all of those different things that are causing it? Well, now Paul focuses upon the three most common relationships that will shape our lives. And he shows us how the gospel of Jesus completely reshapes these relationships of marriage, family and work. The place in which we spend most of our time, most of our life. If you cast your eyes down there to the passage, you'll see... Um, in chapter 5 verse 21 there, that Paul has given us a general principle here. Chapter 5 verse 21, he said that we'd just be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And in some ways, this verse 21, actually in your Bible there, it's probably put as part of the previous section. I hope you realize if you didn't already now you do that the verse numbers aren't inspired by God okay that's somebody's best sort of attempts to try to group uh, this sort of original language as they're translating it it comes not with those verse numbers and in fact actually not with punctuation so you imagine that kind of task to try to sort of put this in some sort of sensible order and it's a noble effort but it might well be that verse 21 actually ought to be in our section here that this introduces the theme a general principle that we're to be in all of our relationships submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And now here's a principle that will play out in these three different relationships, marriage, family, and work. What will that look like for us? The gospel, you see, is calling us to a way of living. That's why in the early days of the church, as people are really just trying to understand what is fully going on here, and they don't really know what to call it. Believers aren't called Christians until actually the church at Antioch a few years after, where uh, really as the culture are trying to understand who are these people, the best effort they can say is they're like Christ. Until that point, the, the description that's, that's been used is followers of the way. 
to try to get out this idea that they're following this completely different, completely countercultural pattern of life, this way. And we've seen some of the signs of that new life in chapter 4, 17 to, to 521. And so now we're going to see how that actually transforms the relationships that order our lives. And so we might just ask, just before we come to look at these sections here, why does Paul do this? Why does Paul go here? Why does this seem a logical step for Paul to break from going to a very detailed list of sort of imperatives, those things to do, whereas we've had sort of four chapters of just indicatives, that is him telling us things that are just truths, and we've said there's not a single one used until he gets to chapter four, and then he more than makes up for it because it's a chapter full of them. Why does he then switch from here to talking about relationships? Unlike many Greek, Latin, and rabbinical teachers of ethics, one commentator says, Paul doesn't only or primarily address the free male members of human society. He makes wives, children, and slaves as responsible for a good social order as those who wield or presume to possess superior power. There's something really significant that Paul is doing here in the way in which he talks about society, in the way in which the gospel would affect and reshape all of these different relationships here. Marriage and children were not held in high esteem in the first century. In fact, actually, Emperor Augustus uh, actually had to offer financial incentives to increase the rate of marriages, to reduce the rate of adultery, to increase the birth rates, and to reduce personal spending. Because marriage and children were seen as something that kills your ability to really live. Does that not sound familiar? Today, marriage and children are often portrayed as sort of mundane, unfulfilling, disruptive to the things that would really allow you to have joy in your life. And we've lost a sort of sense of dignity and value and adventure to marriage and to raising a family. And specifically here, before, to, in the place of advancing the kingdom of God. Because one of the things we're going to see is that actually you might think that ah, this feels like a little bit of a tangent. Why are we now just getting into sort of talking about relationships? For Paul, it isn't at all. Actually, one of the most foundational ways in which we will advance the kingdom is through these simple everyday relationships. So let's look at them each in turn. Let's first turn to marriage here in verses 22 to 30. 33. And I think probably we have to just meet a couple of possible objections that, that might be there. You, you might possibly have a bit of an objection here because you might think, well, actually, I'm not married or I'm not engaged to be married. So, you know, do I really need to, to listen to this? Is this so relevant for me? Well, you might not be. You might be correct in that. But one day you might be. And certainly around you, you have brothers and sisters in Christ, you have other fellow believers who are and who you can be a support to. And so it's just as relevant for you to hear it too. Second possible objection is, is what Paul puts here, and you'll have already heard it, and your eyes might be scanning down towards it, and you might be wondering about it already and what I'm going to say about it, but is this not a very patriarchal view of society? Uh, yes, it is. It clearly is, isn't it? But what I want to argue for and to show you through Paul here is that it's a good, it's a nurturing, it is a gracious patriarchy because it is not men as overlords. It's men as servants. 
Is it chauvinistic in some way? Well, no, I don't think that it is chauvinistic, and I'm going to sort of put that case forward for you, though you may well have experienced that. Okay, and I'm not here to tell you that you haven't experienced that and, and to not tell you that, that, of course, that is toxic, isn't it? And, and that's not what we're wanting to present here, very aware of that. And, and this doesn't value men above women. It doesn't do that. What this is, is complementarian. What that means is that we're made with the same value, the same worth, but with distinct roles that help us both flourish so it's not chauvinistic, I don't think. And I don't think it's misogynistic, though we know that we live in a culture in which is having to engage with the reality in which there are lots of parts of life and society that are misogynistic. And it's right that those things be addressed. It's right that those things be corrected. And we wouldn't want for this to, in any sort of sense, be twisted and used to try to support misogyny. No, that's wrong. Men and women need one another but we also need to fill God-given roles. There's a God-given order here. There's a God-given order for flourishing for both men and women. And so don't let your, the sort of poor caricatures, perhaps, because you may well have heard some messages even on this passage, perhaps, that you're even recalling to mind now and thinking, oh, I hope it's not going to be another one of those. I hope that it won't be. And I hope that you maybe be able to push pause on the poor caricatures. Think of it like this. If you were to go, this can't happen at the minute, I don't think with COVID rules, but assume COVID rules aren't a thing, you know, in the world before COVID, you know, and you could go tonight down to a music club and you might listen to an Elvis tribute act. And I might go down and I might sort of go and try to put on a show and, in fact, to be honest, the only thing about me that might in any way try to sort of match Elvis is that I'm getting somewhere towards his physique in the sort of latter years uh, of his career, unfortunately. That's no good thing. Glad I don't have to wear a sort of spandex jumpsuit for you this morning. But if I go on and I put on a show and, you know, really the only thing that I can do is sort of almost match the physique, you're not going to be very impressed. But I would like to hope that you wouldn't come out of that show thinking, do you know what? I always thought Elvis was pretty good, but Elvis wasn't that good, was he? No, you just think that he was a really bad tribute act. Don't let the poor caricatures shape what you might think of this passage here. The church's teaching has sometimes wandered into a sort of misogyny and chauvinism, and, and that is wrong. And that is not what the Bible's teaching here. Next objection might just be that isn't this all too personal? You know, shouldn't a relationship be a very personal thing? Is, is, is it really right for us really to, to speak into people's relationships? Well, the whole idea throughout the letter of Ephesians has been that the gospel speaks into every area of life. Why on earth would it not speak into an area in which we spend so much of our time and our life and so much of the rest of what we do comes out of? The gospel redefines and reshapes and renews all of life. It absolutely should speak into such a core relationship, shouldn't it? Perhaps you've had a bad experience, the next objection. Uh, you may have experienced personally or, or friends you know may have or family around you may have a bad model of masculinity. Absolutely, you, you may have. And so you may just have to try, hard as it is at times, to park that bad experience as we think about it this morning. Perhaps the objection might be that you might think, well, is what Paul's saying just a reflection of the culture that he lived in? You know, and in which case, 
if Paul is just speaking about the culture in which he lived in, then, then maybe actually we need to just leave that bit and think about talking about marriage in ways that are reflective of our culture today. Well, actually, Paul's message here I want to show you, and hopefully will become clear, is not reflective of his culture. Why? Well, there's two primary ways. Firstly, Paul's vision of uh, marriage is, is actually far more gracious than his culture ever was around him. And secondly, Paul is appealing, and you may have heard it as, as Heidi was reading it for us, and you may be looking at it now as you're scanning down there. Paul appeals to Christ as the model and the sort of argument for what he's saying. He's not rooting it in culture. He's rooting it in Christ. Only two more possible objections. You may feel this is very countercultural. It may feel hugely different to the message that we're used to hearing around us so much. And yes, it is. But I want to make the case that actually, whilst it's different, it values people much higher. It helps us to flourish. And it keeps people happier and together. And then lastly, you might have that sort of little nagging objection there, feeling this is sacrificial. This, on the surface, of course, calls for a lot from us. But I promise you, whilst it does that, it leads to infinitely greater life. Jesus, in the Gospels, is recorded as saying that you have to die in order to really find life. And the best marriages are where we are learning together to die to self and to live new life. Paul gives three messages here. He gives a message to wives, a message to husbands, and a message to, to both. Look at verses 22 to 24 with me here. And the first thing we see here is that Paul flips the expectations. You would expect in Paul's culture that really actually, not just you would speak to men first, but you would speak to men only. And Paul already has completely flipped the expectations. One, he's speaking to women, and two, he's speaking to them first. He's going to do that with each group, the, the perceived sort of weaker group, the perceived group that is, that is kind of valued less in this culture. He'll speak to you first. Wives, children, slaves. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And this is a tough sentence. There's three elements that are tough about that sentence. Firstly, submit. That's, that's a tough idea, isn't it, in 2021? But look, look at the next bit there. Submit to your own husbands. What Paul's saying here is he's not making a comment about culture at large. That's, that's really important to see. He, he is not saying that women should be submitting to men across the board, in the workplace, in society. He, he's not talking about that. That's not in his mind. He's thinking of the home, firstly. And secondly, there's a bit of a challenge in that because he's saying submit to your own husbands. And there's a difficulty in that sentence because isn't that the difficulty of calling wives to submit to their husbands that, it, that it's their husband? It's the idiot sat next to you that's the problem. And, you know, you're half right that, you know, submitting would be so much easier if he wasn't like the way he is. And that's true. My wife's time would be so much easier if I wasn't me. If she was having to submit just to Jesus, that, that wouldn't be so much a problem. But it's the fact that she's having to submit to this buffoon. Yes, that is difficult. That is difficult. It's maybe worth just saying that it's a thing. I can't answer it, but I can say that, it, yeah, it's difficult and I can appreciate it. And I can only, I suppose, offer my sympathies uh, and apologies. 
But that's difficult, isn't it? Wives, submit to your own husbands. And yet there's a challenge there, isn't there? Because on the other hand there as well, it's, it's submitting to, to, to this man. Do you, do you believe God has really led you together and brought you together and made you for one another than to not want to submit to a man that he isn't? There is a bit of a challenge there, isn't there? That it's, you, you have to submit to the man that God's given you. Can't maybe expect him to be someone that he isn't flip that the other way around too that nor should a husband expect a wife to be a woman that she just isn't you'd be brought together as you and you're to love one another isn't that the joy but the challenge especially as you grow to see more and more and more about each other as you live together submit to your own husbands as to the lord and there's the Difficult, but, but there's the key to being able to do this. It's a dangerous question, isn't it, perhaps, to ask why is this hard? Because you might, might be able to, you know, wives this morning, you might be able to sit there and say, yeah, I could pop off a quick top 10 uh, pretty quickly. Why is it hard to submit to him? Yes, and some of that will be right, of course. But the reason is one of sin. And one of the fracturing of all relationships. Genesis 3.16, the curse that comes after Adam and Eve both together rebel against God. Here's one of the aspects of the curse. Your desire, he's speaking to Eve, that's women's desire, shall be for, or that is against, your husband. And he shall rule over you. And it's important to notice that this is not criticizing Eve, this is not criticizing women, it's criticizing both. It's saying on the one hand, you'll be tempted to resist, to, to not submit. And yet on the other hand, men will be tempted to rule over, to actually not be a good head, but to be a tyrant. The relationship is fractured. The brokenness of humanity has now even permeated the most uh, close, the most intimate relationship of marriage. So that actually our default position is to be at odds. And we, we both have to work at that. That our default is to want to be at odds, to want to pull in different directions. Women tempted not to submit, but to resist. Men tempted not to sacrifice, but to satisfy themselves with their role this is challenging and yet how do we do it as to the lord see the world says and we've been thinking about this haven't we that the message of the world at wide largely is and it's generalized but we certainly hear it day after day is that it's all about me it's all about expressing myself it's all about fulfilling my needs it's all about pleasing myself meeting my needs how can this then be good? Submitting. Maybe not meeting all your needs in each moment. And yet this view of Christ shapes the view of our partner. Paul has told us generally that we are to submit to one another in Christian community. And that's driven by our view of Christ. So that in verse 21 there, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that the way that you view Jesus shapes the way that you view other people. So if you're struggling to submit to other people, I'm sorry to say it, and I know that it's awkward, I know that it's embarrassing, and no one wants to admit it and be as candid, but the real reason is that you're struggling to submit to Jesus. We don't want to think that. We want to think it's the buffoon in front of us. And there's a percentage of that that's true, that there's a brokenness about them. There's things that they do that are frustrating. 
But the real reason I'm struggling to submit is because I'm struggling to submit to Jesus. I'm struggling to really view him as that big, that good. And so specifically here, submission to the husband is really driven by submission to Christ. The bigger and the better, the greater we see Jesus, the better, the more hopeful, the more gracious view we have of one another. Paul says it in a slightly different way in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 17. We regard no one according to the flesh. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Seeing people very differently, very much more highly than we might be prone to. But it's important, perhaps, to say as much as anything what this submission isn't. Well, firstly, it shouldn't be forced, nor should it be begrudging. Submission isn't something that should be demanded or forced. It should be, in very nature, voluntary. But therefore, also, it shouldn't be begrudging. Submission isn't about silence or, or weakness. It's not having to become silent that you can never speak up. You can never use your wisdom and your abilities and your capability. No, that's wrong. And nor should it be subservience or degrading in any way. It's not being devalued or forgotten compared to this superior husband. It ought to be none of those things. That's not submission. That's, that's abuse. But why should you? Why should you submit here? Verse 23 here. that The husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Why? First reason, because God, there is a God-given distinction of roles between husband and wife. It's a God-given distinction. And yet, it's important to define that word head, isn't it? Because there's some harmful ways in which that could be spun and manipulated, isn't it? So what isn't a head? Well, a head isn't more valuable. Husbands aren't more valuable. The position of head is a distinct role, but it's no more valuable a position. It's just different. The head is, that doesn't happen because men are more capable. That's eminently not true, is it? It's not about capability at all. It's not given by God because men are more capable than women, not at all. A head isn't to be a dictator. They don't make every decision about everything and controlling. There's a huge swathe of life that really does not need to be micromanaged by a head, and that's not the place and role of the husband. Nor is the husband to be a tyrant. The position of head is to be a lead servant. We're going to see that in a few verses for his wife, not doing things for his own good. Firstly, should submit because it's a God-given distinction of roles here. But secondly, Paul isn't appealing here to tradition or to cultural norms, but is appealing to Christ as his precedent. John Calvin writes on this, that as Christ presides over his church for her salvation, so nothing is more useful or good to the wife than to be subject to her husband. To refuse that subjection in which uh, they can be saved is to choose destruction. It's not a cultural norm, far, far from it, to submit as the church submits to Christ. It's probably worth us not skipping over that, actually, that the church is to submit to Christ. 
that everything in which we do as a body together, as a community, is about actually being submitted to Jesus in all things. In all things, we're looking to him and to his word. We're not looking to do things because of our traditions. That is just what we're used to doing. We're not doing things just out of culture, out of what the world says we ought to be doing, or out of our preferences. Well, this is what we like to be doing, but actually we're trying to seek to the best of our ability to do what Christ commands us. And so if we do that as a whole and in all things, that maybe helps shape how we think about our home and our relationships. So also, verse 24 here, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And this pattern is to imitate Christ and the church. But again, there's, there's uh, perhaps a disclaimer we need to put on that. What does Paul mean here by everything? Does he mean everything? I don't think that he does. I think what he's talking about here is a, is a posture, is an attitude. Uh, uh, not that now you're married, you know, you, you'll never get to decide what's for dinner, or you'll be forced to look at the ridiculous wallpaper that he chose because you couldn't possibly have a say in the decision, or you'll always be forced to listen to his awful music in the car because he's the only one who can have the say of the car stereo. It's not about having every decision that way. I think it's about a posture and an attitude of this gentleness, godliness, humble submission and respect and support that's there. It's not about never being able to correct or, or give uh, constructive criticism as well, but it's about the way that it's done, that there's the way in which it's done that it is still respectful. That's actually, you know, we, we need to be told when we're wrong. Um, and it's hard to generalize, but I can say of myself, I don't do subtleties. So it's, it's easier if that's just put plain, because I, I will probably not just work it out. But then there's a way in which it can be done, isn't there? That's effective and it's still respectful. This is a high call, isn't it? And it's tough. But wait, because there's an even higher calling coming for men here. Now there's a word to husbands, verses 25 to 30 here. Husbands, love your wives, verse 25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now I hope that even already, and this is going to be fleshed out even more, but I hope even just in that sentence, and as we begin to unpack it, you'll see that everything that we've just said, that might have felt hard, it might have felt heavy, it might have felt tough, it might have felt very countercultural. all of a sudden, you know, the balance is now swinging back the other way, and you might see that actually it might not work out in some of the ways that you might be afraid that it might, that it might be harmful and diminishing. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, how did Christ love the church? What does that mean? Let's get some specifics on that, because then what does that mean for husbands? Well, Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 2, in some of the ways in which uh, Christ has loved us as a people here. Verse 5 here, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. That he saved you even when dead, even when there was nothing more left for you, no hope left. He's saved you at that moment. He loves you to the extent of sacrificing himself, giving his life that you would find life that you couldn't possibly have found without him. You were six feet under and he's breathed life into you. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ has loved the church. Verse four here. Chapter two, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
He did it, much as we began this morning thinking about, he did it not because you offered something that made it worthwhile, not because you could contribute something, not because you deserved it, but actually because you didn't, and you couldn't, and you don't, and you won't. He loves you because he loves you. And so husbands are to love their wives as Christ has loved the church, to love your wife because you love them. Not because of anything that they are or anything that they could give to you, but simply because. Despite maybe at points not deserving it. Despite at points feeling as a, and it stops the feeling of, you know, you have to earn one another's love. No love because you love. Verse 6, it carries on, there's more, that he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's restored us to new life and raises us up to glory in the heavens. He's died to make you alive. He's come down to raise you up. This is the extent of what Jesus has done, and it's to bear out in the home that you, husbands, are to lower yourself to raise your wife up. I hope that you see and there's, there's more of it, see, that this kind of headship is, is, is not misogyny at all. It's the very opposite. It is the very opposite. It's to be the lead sacrificer, the one who goes more, who goes first. But there's more again, verse 7 here, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He's done all of this, Jesus, for you, personally saving you in this way, so that he could continue to lavish his grace and his love upon you. So that he could make everything about actually showing how great he is to you and all that he's done for you. And so husbands, you are to love your wives in the same way, to make everything about showing the riches of your love. For her, just as Christ does for us both. In verse 9 here, that this is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Jesus does it for you, not because you deserve it, but in spite of the fact you really don't deserve it. And so, you love your wives, even in the moments where you feel as though you may not have earned that response. Even in the moments where you don't feel like doing that. And marriage is amazing and awesome in that. But there are moments like that where you don't feel like responding like that. You don't feel that the sort of circumstances and situations have come together to make you want to respond in that kind of way. But nonetheless, to love in those moments as Christ loves us. It's this kind of love that husbands are called to show their wives. Now, if submitting seemed hard, hopefully you'll see that this is asking even more, actually, on the part of the husband. And hopefully you might see that, do you know what? If only I could be with a man who could love like that, that wouldn't feel so hard to submit to. <laughs> that kind of love that is that sacrificial is not such a hard thing to submit to at all. In fact, it may be a joy to submit to a man who looks like Christ. And here is what it's calling from us. I hope you see that submitting to a man who loves you like that isn't misogyny, but the very opposite. What love that that is. 
I hope that you see, secondly, that submitting to a man who loves you uh, like that, it, it's clear that, that actually that, that's not taxing or, or burdensome, but, but joyous. If only we as men, as husbands, could be more like that, wouldn't it be easier? And husbands, I hope you see how utterly dependent on the renewal of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of Christ's grace to you through him you are to be able to do that. And those of you not husbands yet, that I hope you're realizing now already that if you even have any inkling of thought that you may one day become a husband, that this is what it calls of you. And this is what it takes. It takes nothing less than to be utterly dependent because how on earth could you possibly do that in your own strength? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To be ahead is to be sacrificial it's a sacrificial role. It's not self-serving. And why did Jesus do this? Look at verses 26 to 27 there with me. To, to sanctify her, to cleanse her by the washing of water, by the word, to present to himself in splendor and without spot or wrinkle, being holy and without blemish. As all Christ does for us, his bride is for our good, for our growth, for our glory. All that the husband does is called to be for the good the growth, the glory of his wife. Why should the husband do this? Paul gives us another rationale for this here in verses 28 to 30, that to love your wife is to love yourself. Love your wife is to love your own body. There are some things in life that, you know, really just don't require counseling and support there's no support needed for, you know, I just feel I have too much money. I don't know what to do. This is really stressing me out. We have too much money. That is not an experience that uh, I have certainly ever experienced. I thought, wow, this is causing me great concern. Support and counseling isn't needed for, you know, I just feel so comfortable in my skin. It's the opposite, isn't it? Nobody needs counseling and support because they think, oh, my boss is so amazing. I just feel too supported. Or I just feel too relaxed. I, I haven't been stressed in months. Uh, you know, I've forgotten what it feels like to be stressed. Or my marriage is just so easy. I never struggle. I never seem to have a problem. I wonder if there's something wrong with me. Some things just don't need counseling and support. And if we were to live like this, to love your wife is to love yourself. Things would go better for you. If only you could do this. Marriage calls the husband to actually lead in sacrificing. And yet somehow, at the other end of that, as always is the case with Jesus' commands, there's greater joy at the other end of it. What looks like a sacrifice is no sacrifice at all. It's to find life in all its fullness. So there's been a message to wife, uh, a message to husbands, and now he comes to speak to both in verses 31 to 33. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And there's clear steps there, isn't there? That there's this gaining of independence and sufficiency that should happen, that a man should grow up, should move out of the back bedroom, kick off the Star Wars pajamas, put on the outfit of a proper job, whatever that is doing, grow up and become independent. 
start looking after himself. Hard to respect a man, not sure maybe you should respect all too much, a man who can't respect himself enough to look after himself. To gain independence and sufficiency. Secondly, there's this commitment fully to one another, isn't there? And then thirdly, there's this forging a new, united identity and life together, that you become one flesh together. I think that's so much more about sometimes that kind of gets interpreted euphemistically as only talking about sort of um, the bedroom. I think it's far, far more beyond that. It's two lives actually being forged into one new life together and it affecting everything, every element of life. Why has God ordered things this way? Paul reminds us again here, verse 32, that this relates to Christ and the church. This pattern of marriage points to the gospel. Have you ever thought, I wonder, that you're married if you are, you're married if you one day will be, not just for each other, but to display the gospel and to advance the kingdom, that you are part of something far, far bigger, far beyond yourself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing from prison to a couple about to be married, says, Marriage is more than your love for each other. It has a high dignity and power, for it is God's holy ordinance through which he wills to perpetuate the human race to the end of time. In your love, you see only yourselves in the world. But in marriage, you're a link in the chain of the generations, which God causes to come and to pass away to his glory and calls into his kingdom. In your love, you see only the human, uh, the heaven, sorry, of your own happiness. But in marriage, you're placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It's a status, an office, just as it is the crown and not merely the will to rule that makes the king, so it is marriage and not merely your love for each other that joins you together in the sight of God and man. So that your marriage is a part of God's kingdom plans. That through your love for one another uh, and you sharing your, your life together, but actually opening that up to others, that they're seeing the love of Christ being displayed as a wife lovingly and graciously submits and respects a man who isn't perfect, who doesn't get everything right, who doesn't deserve that in so many ways, who won't earn it, certainly won't keep it up. And yet, on the other hand, a husband loving his wife in the same way as Christ loves the church, sacrificing himself, giving of himself, being the one who gives more, the one who gives first, the one who says sorry first, the one who always is eager to make amends, the one who is willing to be humble enough to jump down. It points to Christ in the world. It's a purpose and a calling and an office far higher than what is so often given. And so Paul resummarizes husbands to love his wife as himself and the wife is to see she respects her husband. This is a totally different picture of marriage, is it not? And yet we see how through this relationship, there's this ability to show what the gospel looks like. As we forgive one another, as we bear with one another, as we sacrifice for one another, as we seek the other's good, it's completely countercultural.
It's why the culture struggles so much with marriage. It's why the rate of divorce is so high and the rate of taking up marriage is so low. There's no way that a worldview that says, as we've reflected so many times, that Paul is in dialogue with here, we think, the world tells us, that we're progressive. History is linear. Culture and philosophy are linear. And so if you live in 2021, you are de facto more progressive, uh, more wise than anyone who's come before, because you're in 2021, for goodness sake. How arrogant. How incorrect. History does not work like that at all, nor does philosophy and theology. It's all cyclical. Writer to the Ecclesiastes has his way of putting it. There is nothing new under the sun. Everything that seems so novel and progressive now has been done before. It's just regurgitating. Every song is replicating something that's come before. There are only so many notes in a scale. There are only so many scales. There are only so many chords. Everything, if you look hard enough, is only ever going to be a replication of something else. Everything that is now, that the world thinks is so unique, so clever, so advanced, so progressive, it's not at all. Paul's dialoguing with much the same worldview that says everything is about your good, your needs, your well-being. And it's not as though those things are totally unimportant. They're important to an extent, but not to an ultimate extent. It's no surprise that a world that so prioritizes you and you above everybody else, you above whatever anyone else thinks. Don't let your family stop doing that if that makes you happy. Don't let your friends put you off if that makes you happy. If you find fulfillment in that, don't let anybody stop you. You do you. It's no surprise that in a culture that so values that and so rarely challenges it, it gets thrown out and it doesn't get challenged as if it's not complete nonsense. It almost gets supported. You'll hear it even in the mainstream of Christianity. It almost gets supported. If we have to jump on the bandwagon of agreeing with this to as much as we can. No, it's utterly stupid. It's not just wrong, it's harmful. It's no surprise, it is no surprise at all that in a world that so views the world, marriage falls into disrepute because marriage calls you at some point to give up stuff. It calls you to sacrifice for another. It's at the core of it that you are giving up for somebody else's good. It's no surprise then. You don't have to look too deep to see why it is. That, and it can be dressed up in lots of academic language. It can be made to sound really intelligent and intellectual and cultural and progressive, can't it? Or I think we've just broken beyond this sort of patriarchal, ancient sort of view of, of ownership of people. Listen to a podcast on uh, BBC Sounds this week of, uh, that was you know, proclaiming the great wonders of polygamy because, oh, here now we're breaking beyond the idea of possession of another. Oh, isn't this great? Isn't this breaking beyond and breaking into new progressive ground? Isn't this going to be so much better? This values people so much higher. I don't own them. No. No, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing good about it. Not only that, it's deeply, deeply harmful. And it ought to be challenged. 
Paul here presents, an entirely different way of viewing life, of viewing one another. But notice how he does it. I think we'll not think about family and work this week. We'll leave them for next week. We'll just think about marriage. There's enough there for that. But notice why Paul does it. Notice what he appeals to. It's really, really important. Paul doesn't just say, you should do this because this is a good idea. He doesn't say, you should do this because this is a good Christian principle. Notice where Paul goes. And this is significant. It's significant to all those other relationships and to everything else we do in our life. That where Paul goes is to say, this is the gospel coming to life. Here's one area of your life in which it can be seen and can take roots and can flourish. Here's what it looks like when you really believe and know that Jesus has loved you in that way, that he's saved you at the point that you were dead, at the point where there was nothing you could do, there was nothing you could offer. You're trapped in trespasses. You're trapped in sin. You can't get out of it. He's done what you couldn't do. He's done it when you don't deserve it. He's done it not because you're lovely or lovable, but actually in spite of the fact you're really not lovely and really in many ways not lovable. That he's gone to the extent and the cost that he has come down from heaven that he might raise you up. That he has given his life that you might find life. And here is Paul saying, here's how this is a message that isn't just some theory for you to agree with. If you know that. The gospel isn't a message here, and I hope that's come clear through the course of going through Ephesians together, is that Paul isn't presenting to you here a message for you to consider and think, oh, what do you think about that? What do you feel about that? Do you agree with that? Does that sound rational to you? He's not asking for your agreement, nor does Jesus ever ask for your agreement. He doesn't ask you to agree with him. Frankly, he's not so insecure in himself that he needs you to agree with him or not. I'm very insecure. I need people to agree with me because I need that sense of approval. Jesus doesn't. Frankly, he doesn't care if you disagree. He doesn't care if the message of the culture is, oh, I'm not sure that we can agree with this. I'm not sure that we can find this acceptable in the day in which we live. So what? He's not bothered a bit. He didn't ask you to agree with him. He doesn't need you to agree with him. What he's calling for is your life. And here's how it looks. When you give up your life, here's how it looks. Here's how it gives a completely different view of the home. A home that flourishes. Because both are looking to Christ. Are looking to the life that we find in him. Looking to the sacrifice and the gift that comes from him and saying, you know, what would it look like? To do that for one another. To have a home that flourishes in the grace of Christ. And a home that opens others in to that. To come and experience that. And savour that. And see that. See not just Christian principles. But the very gospel at heart. At work. In our lives. Here's what it's calling for. And it calls for sacrifice. It calls on the one hand for wives to submit. And that's hard. And it calls for husbands to sacrifice themselves. And so, what do we possibly do at the end of all of that? Where do we go? How can we find hope to do that? Because 
probably you'll know a sense of thinking to whatever extent and however great your relationship is or relationship you uh, hope will be and stuff, probably thinking, I'm not sure if it quite looks like that. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'd quite want it to be sort of on display now. I'd, I'd maybe be thinking, oh, perhaps it's falling short in some ways. Well, of course, mine too, by the way. So what do we do? Where do we end? Well, turn you back as we have done a couple of times already to Paul's prayer. And to pray for it for ourselves. That we might see in our relationships, in our daily life, help us to not only believe the gospel, but to live it out for one another, for our lives to be reshaped in light of it, to live in all of that wealth and weight of joy and fulfillment that we find. And we'll think uh, next week about how that happens in family and work too. But Paul says this, chapter 3, verse 14 here. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You might hear some of those calls from Paul and think, wow, that is, that is just so above and beyond. How, how can I get there? And yet, as with all that Paul has said, he doesn't want to leave you in a place of thinking that and feeling, oh, well, this is just desperate. I'm just never going to live up to that. Paul absolutely believes that you can live up to that by coming empty-handed, broken, flawed to Christ and looking to him and being filled with him, having the presence of Christ with us. And his expectation is that it's the presence of Christ, the knowledge of his love for you, the height, the depth, the length, the breadth, enables you to be completely transformed. That he loves you because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you. And he'll never not love you because he loves you. And if that's so, now you're freed to be able to love more like him. And the amazing thing about all of that is you might feel sometimes, I wonder, do you know, how, how do I really get involved with God's mission? How do I really be a part of a kingdom of God advancing? And sometimes I wonder if that maybe feels to you like a really daunting thing. And, you know, uh, what does that mean for me where, where I work a job? And, and I still want to work that job. I'm not saying I want to get on a plane and, you know, go to far afield and, and be on mission like that. I, you know, I have my job and I have my life and my friends and stuff. And I still want to do that, but I, but I still want to be a disciple of Jesus. And I want to be part of the mission of God that's working in the world around me. And I want to be able to share the gospel with those around me. How, you know, how do I do that? Sometimes it can seem like a thing that's so far off. The wonderful thing that Paul is doing here is showing it's not far off at all. 
It's as simple as the people right in front of you and opening up that everyday life that you have to see that completely countercultural view of, of, of God and of people. There's a world out there absolutely desperate to see this kind of marriage. Not just to see, because I'm thinking about getting married and be interested to see how that works, but to see that kind of love. And to be able to then ask, why do you do that? Do you know, why are you so respectful of him? Even though he's got all his faults and everything else. Why are you so respectful? <laughs> or why are you so self-sacrificial? Or, or why is it this stuff that we think is just a given norm that men can just do and get on with? You, you don't do. You, you're loving your wife in a different way. So that your answer can be not just some Christian principle, but, well, this is how Jesus loved us. And what we're trying to do, flawed and imperfect, is just try to love like he loved us. Mission's really very simple in many ways. It happens in everyday relationships that we're all in and it's all around us and in front of us and before us. It's about all of life being transformed in the light of the gospel. Let me pray for us. I've gone significantly uh, off of my notes, so <laughs> I've no concept of time here of how long that's taken. So uh, I half apologize, uh, but I half don't. And so that's probably a full not apology um, because uh, we need to hear the gospel. We all need to. And so, yeah, I sort of surface level apologize, but then also don't. So. Uh, take that how you want i don't really know how to go with that there from now i guess i just feel a bit bad let me pray father god i thank you for your amazing love towards us it is so hard to comprehend the height the depth the length the breadth of your love for us that you love us simply because you love us not because of anything we give, not because of anything we could give, not because of anything we contribute, not because we deserve it. We don't. And yet you do love us. Uh, it's just such a transforming, freeing, liberating truth. In a world that says that if someone doesn't earn stuff from you, then forget about them. Do away with them. They're no good for you. Lord, just so grateful that you don't view us that way. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here, whether in the room or whether uh, watching along on, on Zoom today, who has not come to that point of knowing your love for them personally, not come to that place of knowing your uh, gift of salvation to them personally, that by the power of your spirit now, you, you might reveal that to them in their heart where they are. They might know that you've done this for them and that they might turn to you and find life and life in all its fullness. And Lord, for us, as we think about this and think about it, and we've thought about it in just one area this, this morning in which this can play out and take effect in our everyday life. Lord, help us, whoever we are, wherever we are, whatever our life situation is, Lord, to know your great love for us and help us, Lord, the, the one who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Would you grant us your presence? that we could love like this, that we could love in light of how you've loved us, Jesus. And Lord, that we might be able to present a way of 
living, a manner of caring for one another that demands a question of why on earth do you do this? How do you find the, the motivation to, to care for people like this? Lord, for that, we, we're just so dependent on your spirit. Lord, for those of us who, who are husbands, and we will be to different extents and in different ways failing on that, of course we will. Forgive us, help us, empower us, equip us, help us to encourage one another, to spur one another on, to call each other uh, to, to better things. Lord, help us, we pray. Lord, for wives, of course, of imperfect husbands, help them as, as, uh, to be able to forgive, to be able to, um, to be gracious at times where maybe that's not easy, uh, where maybe it would be uh, e- easier to, uh, you know, just to, to push them away a bit. Uh, pray for your help or for wives as, as they're you know, called to, to submit, pray for your help and your strengthening in, in doing that and, and, and help to see that it's, uh, it's, it's not for, for bad ends, but it, it's for good. Lord, help us, help us as we're just trying to, to be your people, to be able to love like you have loved us uh, in our home and certainly as well, Lord, beyond to be able to love a world that is broken in so many ways. And of course, it's got so many mixed up ways of, of seeing things. But Lord, help us just like, on the one hand, we have to challenge. We have to, you know, actually offer a different story. But but also, you know, to, to love. And to say, you know what, the reason we we believe this, we're part of this is because it's, it's better. It's better life. It's more joyous so lord we we pray for your help we're just so dependent upon you so so thankful lord that this morning the place that we can wind up is asking that you will help us that you will fill us that you will lead us and reshape us in all of the ways that you need to do that so lord pray that you would be doing that work in me and in everyone else lord in those different ways in which you know we need that for your glory and for the good of those around us uh, we pray, and for the advance of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to... Uh...